Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've reached the end of yet another tumultuous week here at the Independent Republic and we are all still here as we edge ever closer to the day when we can once again be free. It's time to take stock of exactly where we are and exactly where we are going. The monarchy is still intact despite the best efforts of the Duke and Duchess of Netflix to tear it down during their interview with Oprah Winfrey. Piers Morgan has left Good Morning Britain and he's not going back after his assertion that he didn't believe a word Meghan Markle said. The royal family fight back has begun with Prince William yesterday declaring we are very much not a racist family while he was walking around a school in London's East End doing his royal duty and his assertion that he hadn't spoken to his brother since the Oprah Horror Show on Sunday was seen as an indication of just how bad relations are between them. This morning we'll talk to royal expert and author Robert Jobson, a man who witnessed the deterioration of friendships and relationships at the palace during the Princess Diana era. We'll be asking him where it all goes from here. 0344 499 1000. Coming up we've got Nick Dubois on the nurse's pay rise and a ridiculous slow hand clap last night which practically nobody did. Plus, Kevin O'Sullivan will be here with his take on the Scottish hate crime laws and why the BBC has cancelled its left-wing comedy show. As ever, of course, we want to hear from you. What are you hearing? What are you doing? And how has the first week back at school been for you? My youngest goes back today, so I'll bring you reports on that uh, as and when uh, I can. 03444991000. We'll also be talking about taking back the streets this weekend as thousands of women are planning a march for their own safety, which they've been warned by police they shouldn't do. Not because it's dangerous, but because of the COVID restrictions. And we'll find out what the latest variant strain, of course, of COVID is. This one's from Antigua, apparently. Plus, it's Friday, so it's time for the Perrier Awards. And homage to my brilliance in broadcasting in the company of producer Marta Amalagon. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's talk now straight away to Robert Jobson, royal author, royal expert, a man that I've worked with over many, many years, many decades, actually. And we were both involved in um, the the whole situation regarding Princess Diana uh, when she split from uh, Prince Charles, when she did the interview with Panorama, uh, all the way through to um, her terrible death in a car crash and her funeral. Robert, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. This has been about as um, cataclysmic a week for the royal family that, that, that I can remember since those days. Yeah, it sure has. In fact, in fact, in many ways, I think it's more damaging um, because of the allegations of racism and um, the allegations over mental health are, you know, very delicate issues and ones you've got to really tiptoe through the tulips on. Um, and we live in very different times as well, where everyone seems to be offended by anybody else speaking their mind or saying what they want to, if it doesn't agree with their viewpoint. Yes. I mean, I described the interview and, and Meghan Markle in general yesterday as a sort of one-woman wrecking ball, because she's basically taken uh, a hit at all sorts of things, uh, and lots of things will never be the same again. 
I don't think anything can really be the same again. And the biggest problem they've got, of course, within the royal family is trust. Uh. Um, you know, but you do have to take these claims seriously. If there is a racist at the palace, I think in this day and age, brushing it under the carpet, as really that statement by the palace has effectively done, is not good enough. I think if there was a misunderstanding, I think the person that made that comment um, should come out and say, look, I said it, I didn't mean it in that way, I'm, I, I've got it wrong. Right. Um, and I think that would clear it up. I think that Prince William was speaking yesterday, saying we're not a racist family, which I agree with him after 30 years of covering the royals. I just don't see that. I don't recognise them to be that in any way. But equally, you know, as I say, in this day and age, different people have different interpretations. And I think that maybe the person that has said that, if they had, has got to deal with it. And, and that way we can finally draw a line under mm. Yes, I think how whatever it was that was said was said is important. And the words used and the form of those words is important. Um, but it may well be, of equally, course, equally that... My, but equally, Mike, the stuff on the mental health, you know, everyone's had their issues. I've had my issues. So has anyone dealing with grief and, and loss, etc. So I do think the mental health one is a very strange one and what it has to be taken seriously. However... What I don't understand, and I think it is worth saying, is why Megan, a member of the royal family, was even thinking of going to HR. Mm. You know, I, I've been with the royals on tour. Even when I twisted my ankle, Prince Charles let me use his doctor. He said, I'd check him over. Right. There's a doctor with them 24 hours a day. You just go to a doctor mm. privately, and he will refer you to a, a mental health practitioner, uh, or she. Yes. So yeah. I don't really understand that one, why she was going to HR about it. No. Check out whether she had a private health policy. I don't understand. No, but I mean, so much of what she said doesn't really quite make sense, does it? I mean, you know, the idea that they took her passport offer. Well, you know, it may well be that they took her passport offer for safekeeping, but that doesn't mean that mean. But but her inference for that was I couldn't go anywhere, which was clearly rubbish. Well, I mean, you know, I think that the bottom line is I think that um, if Megan didn't know what she was getting herself into, I'm surprised because... You know, she says that she didn't understand what was going on with the royal family, didn't even know who Prince Harry was, never heard of the Diana interview where her mother hadn't. All sounds a bit odd to me. But the, the, the point that, with that is that she did a few months before she married, um, going around the country, and it was all seen as extremely positive as mm. she was getting to know what royal duties were. Maybe, you know, going to Nottingham on a wet Wednesday wasn't what she expected and she preferred Malibu or LA. And that, yeah. frankly, sounds like it to me. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what happens now? Because we're told there's a second part of this interview, uh, which I presume isn't as riveting as the first part, because presumably uh, it's got stuff in it that's not quite as interesting. Um, but as you say, I mean, if, if it is left as it is now, what, 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 where do you see it all going? Well, I, I don't think it can be left as it is now. I think they have to, Palace has to respond properly, I think, by keeping it internal when it's been made. It's like putting everything back in the box after it's come out. You know, this is not a journalist or you or me making these allegations or on the off-the-record source. This is a member of the royal family, Princess Diana's son and his wife, making these allegations to millions publicly. You can't then suddenly say, we'll deal with it privately. Mm. You're either going to deal with it and say, we've, we've had an investigation the person is this person, and this is what they meant by it. They, they apologise. And as as with regard to with the bullying that's gone on, that has to be public as well. Look, the, the monarchy is a publicly funded institution. Mm. You know, the bottom line is, if, if these things are going on in, in a corporation, effectively that's what it is, a branch of government, then the public has to know, because otherwise this institution is going to be seen as outdated, archaic, and it'd be damaging to our country. At the moment, you've got questions being raised in the White House, you've got former, former First Lady and Secretary of State 
former Secretary Hillary Clinton raising questions about Britain, it's damaged our country, not just our monarchy, our country. And I don't think that's a great look. And we have to fight back. Yes, but I suppose in the end, it depends on how many people believe what Megan said. And from what I understand, there is a, you know, a huge bit of America that doesn't care well, I mean, about you know, we have to, to be honest, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do a flounce off and do a, a Piers Morgan. The fact <laughs> is, you know, when he said what he said, right. you know, he wasn't allowed to say it. You know, this is the world we live in. I mean, whether we believe her or not, she's, it's her perception of what happened. Yeah. Now, there are discrepancies in her story. She said she was spoken to about the racism. And Harry said it was once, but he's never going to talk about it. But then he talks about it to Oprah Winfrey, says it's not my grandfather and my grandmother. So yeah. it's a death by a thousand cuts. You're leaving other senior members of the royal families with a finger pointing straight at them, and they can't really answer back. Mm. So... I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in what um, Harry and Meghan have uh, said, but they've said it. It's their perception, and we can't rubbish their perception, but they should be called up on it where there's this... The stuff about the prince, okay, mm. very clear things. They knew, both of them knew, that, that Archie would become a prince if they wanted them to, as would all their children, in accordance with the protocol laid out by George V a long time ago, uh, you know, uh, that they would become princes, when Charles becomes king, mm. as for signing bodyguards, that is not a decision made by the Queen. That is a decision made by the Commissioner of Police yeah. of Scotland Yard because it's taxpayer funded. So why aren't they pointing the finger at the Commissioner of Police? Right. Why are they pointing it at the royal family? There's, it doesn't, whether if they were writing about getting Scotland Yard bodyguards and having it withdrawn, why weren't they writing to the Commissioner of Police? Why were they writing to the why they were right to the Queen. Yeah, and my understanding was they had some British British police bodyguards when they first went to, Can to Canada, to Vancouver Island. And, and also the Canadian bodyguards, but as soon as they decided that that was it, they were going to move to America. And mm. then, you know, as for the funding for Prince Charles, Prince Charles was funding, you know, I don't know any people with a trust fund that was left in their teenage, teenage years haven't touched that trust fund, but Prince Charles has been funding Prince Harry and then his wife to the tune of around about two, two and a half million pounds a year yeah. um, whilst they were working for the royal family. When they signed, and I think that continued until actually the Netflix deal was signed. Mm. Well, why should he continue paying I for know. them? He's a 36-year-old man. I mean, goodness sake. Well, this is it. I mean, we keep hearing them described as the young couple. Well, they're hardly young. You know, like you say, he's 36, she's, she's older, and she's on her second marriage. It's not exactly like they're two innocents abroad, are they? Well, Mike, you know, when you're approaching 40, and she's like close to the 40, and Harry hasn't spent, you know, let's say the trust fund is his savings. Mm. Well, he hasn't spent any of his savings uh, as he approaches 40, and he's done pretty well. I don't know many 40-year-olds who can achieve that, but there we are. I wish I could. But no, exactly the bottom right. line is they have a perspective, they have a voice, but we shouldn't then silence other people from having their no. voice and their, if they disagree. No, and the final question, Robert, because I know you haven't got a lot of time this morning, is now that they've sort of shot their bolt, as it were, they've given their big story away, they haven't got a lot else to, to offer, have they? Well, you know, America, as you know, having worked there, Mike, is a, is a pretty um, cut and thrust place. You know, if they don't think they're going to get their money's worth, then you don't get paid. Mm. And that's, you know, they're not into long-term contracts and payoffs and things mm. like that. Bottom line is, if they if their star begins to not shine quite as bright, the bucks won't come in quite as much. But, you know, I'm not really that worried for them because he has a trust fund around 30 million. She's supposed to be worth 10 million. Mm. They live in a big house in Hollywood. They wanted privacy. They wanted a quiet life. 
well, then they can have it. <laughs> yeah, how's that going for them? Unbelievable stuff. Robert, thank you very much indeed. Robert Johnson, Royal Editor of the Evening Standard, uh, author, expert, uh, a man that's covered all sorts of different things with the royal family all the way through uh, since the beginning of uh, uh, the Princess Diana era back in the sort of early 80s. Because, of course, if you think about it and if you think about what the royal family is having to go through, the idea that Prince William suddenly has to answer a question which is shouted at him from a reporter, are you a racist family? And he answers, and it's on the front page uh, of the Daily Mail today, William blasts back at race slur. Duke says royal family is not racist and the Queen and Charles support him. I'm surprised actually that Robert said that they need to come out and do something more public than what they've done already. My view would be that they don't need to do that, that they should just draw a line under it. Uh, they should look uh, askance at uh, Harry and Meghan. And they should take the view that, well, there's an awful lot of uh, holes in their story. There's an awful lot of things that they might have thought happened, which didn't happen. There's an awful lot of things that they said, which are simply not true. The prince situation, the bodyguard situation, so much of what they were insinuating has quite obviously been, shall we say, spun to make it look as if they are the victims of something which didn't actually happen. Now, Robert says in this day and age, you have to take the view that basically uh, they are um, entitled to believe that they were treated badly. And if they think that they were discriminated against in some way, or if they think that somebody said something racist, then that's good enough. Well, I'm not sure if it is really. This is a massive organisation. This is a huge traditional um, part of the great British uh, culture that we have here. And it's under attack. And it's under attack from people from the inside of it. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, uh, we were talking just now about Keir Starmer and the Labour manifesto for uh, the local elections coming up in May. One of the things that he didn't talk about, uh, which you would think would have an effect on the local elections, of which way you're going to vote, uh, is the council tax bills of this country, which on average uh, will top £2,000 for millions of households next year, with payments set to rise on average by 4.3%. Now, this has all happened in a kind of stealthy way because not everybody is aware of it, not everybody notices it, but it's a big, big amount of money for an awful lot of people in an awful lot of households. Let's talk now to Darwin Friend, policy analyst at the Taxpayers Alliance. Darwin, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. This, this has sort of happened over the years in a way which is quite insidious to me because you kind of don't notice tax council tax going up. But for, as, but for the, that statistic to have average uh, council tax bills topping £2,000, that's an extraordinary amount of money, isn't it? As always, Mike, you're right. Taxpayers simply cannot afford tax hikes of this size at this time. Given the pressures that the COVID pandemic has had on household budgets, I think councils actually need to focus on getting their own house in order first. I mean, research we've done at the Taxpayers Alliance has shown that councils have spent £6.8 million on flights in recent years yeah. and over £6.5 million on award ceremonies. So before asking residents to dig further into their own pockets. I think they need to be cutting their wasteful spending first. Well, exactly. And these, of course, are organisations that are always complaining that they've had their central funding cut, that they haven't got any spare money, they have to shut the local library because they can't afford to run it. Um, but there's no shortage of money going into their pension funds and there's no shortage of six-figure salaries going on either, is there? No. Well, as you probably know, we have an annual release of the Town Hall Rich List and last year it showed 2,667 local authorities employees mm. earn over a hundred thousand pounds and the report by sipfa mentions the northeast and southwest as having an average council tax over two thousand pounds 
where in fact both of those areas, the Northeast had 115 employees earning over 100,000, mm. and the Southwest had over 220. So there's clearly plenty of money for them to uh, give out to their give out to their employees. Well, exactly, and the services haven't exactly been improving over the years, have they? No, absolutely not. And I think a lot of taxpayers, a lot of your listeners are going to be really wondering what their value for money is by these tax rises. I mean, you only have to look at potholes, for example, they're never ending complaints about them. And given the fact that local authorities only actually raise 20% of the uh, funds that they spend, the rest of it is from the central government. So clearly, they don't mind using uh, national taxes in order to uh, pay for local spending and quite frankly during these pandemic lockdowns an awful lot of work that the council would normally be giving out to people such as things like fixing roads or even kind of you know trimming hedgerows or in parts of the country where they need to do that kind of thing i mean none of that's been going on has it no, absolutely not. Like I say, the COVID pandemic should have actually made, in a sense, the pressures on some budgets for councils easier. But as the Office for Budget Responsibility has shown, these tax rises from next month are going to raise £1.8 billion extra for councils. Mm. And by 2025, it's £7.5 that adds up to. Now, I just don't think that's sustainable for taxpayers who are not seeing pay rises themselves in order to fund fund these tax hikes. Well, that's right. And an awful lot of people still think that the way that they rate properties is very old fashioned because they're still using, are they not? I think I'm right in saying um, a sort of a, a tariff from the 90s, aren't they? Yeah. So the last time they actually did a valuation was in 1991. Mm. And so actually two properties that may have been built at exactly the same time in exactly the same place, but ha may have exactly completely different rates now because their valuation was it from 1991? And so one thing that they desperately need to do is actually update that, in my opinion. And so then people are actually getting a fair evaluation of what their house is actually worth. Yes. And I know that people really didn't like the poll tax. But, you know, I always thought that actually charging households, depending on how many people lived in that house, was actually a far fairer way of doing it rather than, say, charging somebody who might not be uh, on anything other than a fixed income, who happened to live in a big house because it's always been their house, but there was only one of them having to pay loads. Yeah, I mean, economically speaking, it is just a more equality, uh, more fair way of taxing people because mm. obviously everyone's facing the same same rate. But I think the thing that we really need to be asking, given the fact that we have got the current system that we've got, is how councils are spending that money. And like I say, they're clearly not spending it just on services for taxpayers, which is what it should be there for. They're mm. spending it on award ceremonies for themselves, which, given the fact the tax burden is currently a seventy-year high. That I don't think taxpayers will appreciate that. No, you're absolutely right. Darwin, it's great work. Thank you very much indeed. Darwin Friend, policy analyst at the Taxpayers Alliance there, explaining why uh, so many people's council taxes now gone through the roof, literally. Over £2,000 a year is now going to be uh, the cost to as many, uh, as, as many people in this country as about half of them. Average council tax bills will top £2,000 for millions and millions of households. That to me, is quite ridiculous, uh, quite outlandish, and quite unfair. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let's go straight to the phones, because there's an awful lot of you want to get on. We want to try and get as many of you on today as possible. John uh, is up in Appleby. Hello, John. Hi, morning, Hi. Mike. Morning. What can I do for you? It's about the, the, uh, the situation with the NHS. Yes. I think the best way to deal with it, uh, morally and politically, would be to give those frontline workers, the nurses especially, who are really stretched hard in this, 
um, a, a bonus, a mm. one-off bonus. Yeah. It would be fair because one, it's a, it's a reward for a particular unfortunate, you know, bad situation mm. that went on for a year yes. and for a special effort. Because otherwise, if you give a, a, a great pay rise right across the board mm. in the NHS, lots of people who are just joining it now and have made no particular effort will be getting it. By the same token, people who are leaving, mm. you know, uh, they won't get anything. Right. So it's, it's a reward for a particular set of circumstances to a particular group of people, a bonus, and then we get on with, with, with normal life. Yes. It seems to be coming to an end. It's not something that's carried on forever. No. And to give a huge pay rise to hundreds of thousands of people, many of whom had no, uh, we know, weren't under a special pressure, because that's the reality of mm. it, uh, would be unreasonable for the country. So I think if the government came up with the idea of a bonus for nurses, front, you know, those frontline people, a one-off, based on if they did it for six months, they get one figure. If they did yeah. it for the whole year, they get another figure. And, and people who are leaving the profession and going elsewhere, they get rewarded rather than people who just come in for the first time. I mean, nursing recruitment, apparently, people making inquiries, hasn't been higher for years and years. So at the moment, there doesn't seem to be a shortage of people wanting to come into the profession. Mm. But you need to reward those who made the special offers, who I think do deserve something special, actually. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, you say uh, you don't think it's worth giving them a huge pay rise, but, of course, the pay rise currently on offer, which might change, is only 1%. So I don't think they would regard yeah. it as huge. But because there's so many people in the NHS, it's a lot of money. Yeah, the NHS, I think, figures something like 800,000 people employed, you know. So it's a lot of people, uh, quite a number of whom uh, were not in the position. I mean, they might have wanted to, have the, you know, done this had they been asked to make special efforts. There were certain people who put themselves out, as far as I can see, to a very considerable extent, for which the nation is grateful. So we pay them a bonus for that. No, I think that's right. But there's also an awful lot of people in the NHS who would have been working from home for the best part of the year. Indeed, um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't see why we should give them a pay rise, to be honest. Well, indeed. Well, a lot of people are, are office workers, for want of a better term. Yes. Uh, or are working in laboratories and so on. Mm. Um, uh, all jobs have the pressures, but they weren't under any pressure, uh, pressures that lots of people in the country weren't under, and uh, who, you know, were earning much lower salaries and uh, and uh, and you know, other systems of reward. You know, they don't have the pensions and everything else built in, which NHS workers do. So, it, you know, the idea of re- rewarding, you know, the whole NHS with a huge pay rise, I think, I think it's inappropriate. Yes. Particularly in the country's economic circumstances. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Good call. Thank you, John, very much indeed. John in Appleby there setting out his stall. He thinks that uh, a good idea would be to give those people who have been working on the front line, and of course, I don't think anyone would disagree with this, a one-off bonus. I think that's a great idea. If the government could do that, it would be much more sensible than giving everybody a flat rate across the board 1%, because an awful lot of people, as I say, who are in the NHS don't go anywhere near a hospital they don't go anywhere near uh, clinical trials they don't go anywhere near dangerous Covid wards they sit at home uh, tapping away on a laptop so why should we give them a pay rise it's not like they're heroes or anything is it 0344 499 1000. Let's talk to Emily Carver because in the wake of the big story that's been dominating all the front pages this week, um, the questioning of a police officer uh, in the kidnap and murder of a young woman who disappeared from the streets of London um, and has uh, now been thought to have been killed. Um, In the wake of all of that, there's been a big debate and a big discussion around the streets of this country and how safe they are for women. And while I'm obviously a man, uh, there is no reason why you would expect me not to understand what this is like, because we have sisters, we have mothers, we have daughters, uh, we have cousins, we have female friends, girlfriends, you know, wives. 
who we think, as men, should be free to walk around anywhere they can without fear of being sexually harassed, uh, sexually assaulted, uh, or indeed uh, whistled at. I don't go for those people who say, oh, it's only ni nice to compliment a woman. It's not. If it's not wanted, it's not needed, and therefore you shouldn't do it. It's as simple as that. Let's talk to Emily Carver about all of this. Emily, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks very much for joining us. I've got a really interesting uh, tweet here from uh, somebody called Kim who says, I'd like to be able to park at my workplace. She's a nurse, right? So many nurses and young students having to walk in the dark to get to a bus or a parking place off site. Luckily, I have a husband to pick me up or meet me, but most of the students don't have family in the city. And she's up in the Midlands, right? An awful lot of women are, um, you know, upset about what's happened this week. Many of them uh, that I've spoken to here in the office have actually been quite badly affected by it because they either live quite near where this woman was abducted from, but they've all sort of found themselves telling stories of things that have happened to them, um, which have made them feel either frightened or uncomfortable. And there seems to be an awful lot more of this going on than we thought, really. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly just the reality of being a woman that when you walk the streets, be it at night or during the day, that you do run the risk of getting, you know, certain types of comments, um, certain harassment, you know, just going from a sort of wolf whistle to a cat call to a, you know, just a sort of unpleasant interaction. And that's certainly true. Um, but I think the reason why the story has been made so much of is precisely because the fact these types of crimes are so rare, thankfully, mm. these sort of stranger attacks. I mean, this woman was potentially murdered. So, I mean, this is a rare case. I'm not sure we should be making sweeping generalizations about female-male relations based on this particular event. But I, you know, I do appreciate that we should be talking about um, harassment of women. It does happen. It does happen in cities. It happens across the country. And there are probably things that we should be doing to um, to solve it. But it's 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 quite crazy the conversation that we've had recently. We had the Green Party uh, peer Jenny Jones saying saying that we should be introducing a uh, curfew from six p.m. And now we've heard from uh, Mark Drakeford, who's of course the first mm. the Welsh first minister, saying um, he said it wouldn't be on the top of his list, but he would consider it and not rule out instituting such a measure. And you know, I'm thinking that. This may be one of the consequences of the past year of lockdown measures that politicians suddenly think that they can use these blunt tools, these blunt instruments to solve society's ills. And I think that that certainly is not the case. At the end of the day, this is fundamentally about attitudes yes. towards women and you can't solve that through a curfew. Well, that's absolutely right. Peter has tweeted in to say most blokes are not sex pests, so please stop tiring the rest of us for the actions of others. Nobody's tiring anybody, Peter, but the fact is um, that men are most likely to be sex pests rather than women. But you're right. I mean, Judy Hartley-Brewer this week was saying this, that, you know, she's not frightened of men. She's frightened of bad people. and She's frightened of, uh, of, of walking into a place where there might be somebody who wants to commit a criminal act in the same way that I would be uh, perhaps a little bit unsure of walking through some neighbourhoods of London very, very late at night um, because bad things can happen happen there but but I think overall this idea that Drakeford and others have had which is to kind of suggest that men are the problem is idiotic I mean I'd like to put a curfew on Mark Drakeford to be honest and just say to him just don't go out and don't talk to anybody because you're a complete idiot and it would be a lot safer for the rest of us if you just kept your mouth shut but I mean you know this march that's, that's supposedly taking place at the weekend is also now the sort of subject of controversy I think there's a court case currently going on because the police have told the marchers if you start marching uh, to reclaim the streets, you will be in breach of COVID regulations and you could risk a fine. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I certainly think the vigil should go ahead if people want to do it. I don't think it's a risk in terms of COVID. And as you say, we've had so many different um, uh, protests going on and so on and so forth that have been allowed um, to go on uh, without any police interference, mm. really. So I think it's fair that this goes ahead. But I do agree that we shouldn't be making broad brush statements about men's behaviour. Men are individuals, first and foremost, and um, that's how we should treat them. I also think, you know, having a brother and, and, and obviously knowing lots of men in my life, uh, a lot of young men particularly and, and boys feel very frightened about walking the streets at night. They are uh, usually more uh, more harassed in terms of, you know, muggings and so on. Mm. So they're very much at risk in the same way as women are. Um, but I do think that we need to be, you know, looking at this in terms of social attitudes rather than trying to make legislation. A lot of women's groups are, you know, trying to clamp down on this through making, creating new laws against uh, misogyny and so on and so forth. I don't think that's the way to go about this. This is about cultural attitudes mm. and it's about educating young men that women aren't just uh, there for their, you know, object, aren't there to be objectified and mm. to be treated in such a way. Um, I don't think you can legislate your way out of this kind of issue. No, and I think it's also for other men who are not like that to, to kind of police to some extent the way that other women are spoken to by other men, if you like. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I, I was on a, uh, an escalator on the underground and I was coming out of Waterloo Station or something. And this guy sort of came from behind me and there was a woman standing in front of me about two steps up and he just sort of grabbed her, right? Um, and which obviously she didn't want him to do. And I just, and I just, as he was grabbing her, I just grabbed him and sort of chucked him back down the escalator. Um, and he was quite shocked and she was very grateful. And I think if men can do that sort of thing, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that's always the safest way to go if there's a crowd of people, but you know, I think if other men who are not like that sort of make it very clear that they're not gonna put up with it, I think there'll be a lot less of it. I think that's very true. I mean, it's a it's a collective issue, isn't it? If you see a woman who's clearly looks like she's being harassed or is uncomfortable, it should be for the rest of us to step in mm. and try and help. Because under any circumstances, unless we lived in a police state, there simply isn't going to be a, a policeman next to every woman uh, when she's going about her day to day life. So I think it is for other men and it is for other women to call out this behavior but of course you know we all need to be looking towards each other's behavior men and women because it's not all men who behave in such a fashion there are also very obnoxious women as well out and about oh i can vouch for that definitely no question at all. yeah but i mean you know it's going to be interesting once uh, people start mingling again because i think a lot of people have forgotten how to do it you've actually forgotten how to be sociable with each other <laughs> Um, yeah, there may be quite a few awkward encounters in pubs and bars to come. <laughs> People haven't been out on dates recently, I imagine, so perhaps their uh, social skills are are lacking right. at the moment. We'll see if that has an impact, although I imagine the dating scene and the bars and clubs will be full of young people, you know, trying to meet someone after a year of not being they might able be full to... Of, they might be full of some old people trying to meet someone as well, don't forget, because they're all happy as... They're all happy as Larry now, they've had the vaccine. Sorry, I'm being very ageist. Yes, they'll be out and about before we are, or before I am. Exactly right. Isn't it funny, though, that when you, uh, as soon as you, you look for a cop, you can't find one, but as soon as you start a march uh, on any given day, there's plenty of police and they're all over you like a rash. Well, I mean, this goes back to sort of police priorities. We saw, um, you know, when it was Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, they were very... Uh, 
they weren't exactly authoritarian with their approach to uh, keeping things under control. So they very much seem to be picking and choosing depend on the, depending on the political cause that's involved in terms of protesting. But I think that um, this vigil, uh, this vigil that's going ahead, well, I think it should go ahead firstly. And I think that this is a major issue, but fundamentally it comes down to attitudes. And as you say, men should be um, talking to their peers and saying, you know what, stop wolf whistling that girl, don't harass her, right. behave like gentleman simple as that well i think you know imagine if it was your mother or imagine if it was your sister and somebody was doing that to you i mean i've got as you know a daughter who's who's um uh, living now in the middle east and it's a very different world out there where she tells me it's pretty awful sometimes when you're a woman out and about in a place like dubai um because out there uh, they treat women literally as if they are sort of chattels um and and particularly if you're not from there you don't have any rights particularly, and, and it's quite difficult. And, and thankfully, we are in a much better place than that. But uh, it's only when you talk to your girlfriend or your, your, your mother or your sister or your, you know, like you'd say, you talk to your brother and, and his friends and you get an idea of what it's like for people. Because a lot of nowadays people go, oh, you can't possibly know what it's like to be a woman. Well, no, I can't. But I know plenty of women who I talk to. So actually, I do understand what it's like. Well, yeah, and I think also it's not very PC to say, but there is very different cultural attitudes depending on on in different men and t certainly from where different men uh, come from. I've certainly experienced um, more harassment from uh, and from different cultures, uh, depending on where they come from. And there's very different attitudes across the world. And that should go without saying, really. So it's about sort of have, trying to equalize the way people, the way men view women, first and foremost. Mm. And that's got to come from the family structure and then from the education system as well and then also having the police deal with these crimes in a in a in a, in a strong and um mm. Manner. And also, we were talking about this yesterday with Helen Dale. You know, there is something to be said for the kind of liberal culture that we have encouraged, which allows sex offenders to come out of prison um, because they've become rehabilitated, which everybody with a brain knows isn't the case. And yet these are probably the people who are doing most of this horrible um, uh, crime. Well, yeah, we know that this this man who's been uh, arrested for this crime had um, uh, been, uh, uh, I don't know if he was charged, but he'd been, been a, a suspect suspected of yeah, the indecent exposure. exposure that's right, yeah. That just shows that we need to come down hard on these things to begin with mm. rather than let people loose. It's the same with terrorism. How many times have terrorists that have attempted to blow up somewhere or, or been successful in their aims mm. been known to the authorities before? Exactly. It happens to well pretty, well, pretty much all the time, I think, is the straight answer for that. Well, listen, Emily, really appreciate you talking to us. Thank you very much indeed. It's a difficult subject for some people, this. And I'm not, by any means and by any stretch of the imagination, tiring all men as sex pests or sex offenders or uh, sexual assaulters. They're certainly not. And in fact, I don't know anyone that behaves like that. And probably you don't either. But there are plenty of men out there who do behave like that. Um, and it's important to stop it. And it's important to talk about it. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. 
Talk Radio. And, of course, uh, there will be a podcast coming out a bit later on. There should be a podcast coming out soon of Plank of the Week as well, uh, the show that we managed to get out, believe it or not, this week. So you can go and find that on YouTube where we are live streaming and we're also live streaming on Twitter. Now, just before I talk to Dr Lawrence Gerlis, let me talk to you about uh, this because I've got this very good text. There's a bit missing at the end, so my apologies uh, for stopping whoever has sent this in and not finishing it, but I can't find the end of it. It says this, On the subject of women being safe on the streets, I'm a woman working for the Metropolitan Police in their Central Communications control, taking emergency calls from 999 and non-emergency calls from 101. We work 12-hour shifts, 24-7, which can finish any time of the day or night. Many of us use public transport to get to and from work. My journey from from home takes about 90 minutes and is a mixture of walking and two buses. It's a lonely journey, walking and waiting around at bus stops in the middle of the night when you're physically and mentally exhausted. I live alone, and if I were not to get home safely, no one would really know for days. Whilst I appreciate this is the job, it is sad that there is no recognition, understanding or support from the Met in terms of caring for the safety of the people working for them. I think that's a very good point, and I think a lot of people who work very late at night, and many of them work in the health service, Many of them work in public sector jobs like fire brigades and in uh, police uh, offices as well. So, I mean, I think this is a problem um, that an awful lot of people want to talk about. And maybe something more can be done about it because you're never going to be able to completely guarantee the streets are safe for people to walk around because, unfortunately, there are some bad people out there. uh, And unfortunately, some of them have been let out of prison by the very same people who are now demanding the streets be made safer. Let's talk to Dr Lawrence Gerlis, though, uh, about what's going on uh, in the COVID world. Dr Lawrence, very good morning. Good afternoon, I should say. Yes, hi, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. A couple of things um, to mention to you. I mean, when I heard about this Antiguan thing today, I thought to myself, as you probably just heard, um, this is two people coming back, I I presume from holiday, to Antigua, having brought COVID in. Why do we have to call it the Antiguan variant? Yeah, well, I think you and I, might should go out to Antigua and personally investigate this, quite frankly. <laughs> That's a very good idea. Um, I, I haven't had a holiday abroad for well over a year. Me neither. Um, and I was profoundly irritated uh, around Christmas time when thousands, literally thousands of people were having PCR tests to travel abroad to various places, including Antigua. Yes. Um, I, I mean, you know, we've, we've stopped travelling now. Um, and, and as you say, it's interesting to know what these people were doing in Antigua. Maybe it was a business trip, maybe it wasn't. Sorry, I'm just I'm just being a bit cynical. I'm just I'm I'm just a bit irritated by the whole um, foreign travel thing. Yes. Um, I mean let's let's uh, be uh, fair uh, though, Lawrence, at the time when some people went out and Julie Hartley Brewer was one of them, it was entirely legal for her to do that. I'm not saying I'm not saying it was Ill- it, absolutely and and I am aware she was uh, among other journalists who were who were there at the time. Uh, it wasn't illegal. I just still got irritated. Um, <laughs> but you're, you're right. And I, I was equally irritated when I woke up this morning to see the Antiguan variant because I don't know why the news media want to report this because every time it's reported, um, someone says, and we don't know if the vaccines are going to work against right. this variant. I've, I've seen that said for the the Brazilian variant, for the South African variant, uh, even for the Kent variant. And actually the vaccines have proved to be universally yes. effective well, the against other, all these variants. The other thing that annoys me, and this is where we just get to have a sort of a, 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 a fest of, of, of annoyance, is when the next question that comes from, particularly on television, this seems to happen a lot, how worried should we be about this new variant? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Which is such a loaded yeah. question. Yeah. How about not worried yeah, at all? Loaded... No, I'm not worried. But, of course, the scientists would say, well, you know, uh, you know, third wave and all that sort of thing. Um, listen, I, I said there wouldn't be a second wave. I was wrong. But I'll say now there will not be a third wave in this country. I know other countries, 
Some of those in Europe are having problems, but they've been a bit slow with their vaccination programs. We've done amazingly well with our vaccination program. And if you add to the 23, 24 million people who've been vaccinated, another 10 or 12 million people who've been infected and got immunity, uh, we've cut down on people coming into the country or made it very difficult for people to come into the country, although I do see queues um, reported online at the airports. Um, so I think we have every reason to feel confident. I, I'm Like you, I'm disappointed the April the 12th day isn't going to be moved up, mm. but you're quite right. I think it would send the wrong signal. Well, it would send a signal now, go out and, and enjoy yourself at Easter, and I, I can't see the government doing that, sadly. No, but April the 12th, still, it still seems a long way off from me now where I'm sitting here. It's what it's, it's March the 12th, isn't it? Have I it got is. it right? Yeah. It is March yeah, the 12th. Do you know, I, was, I was reminded uh, by Marta, my producer, this morning that, that on March 12th last year, that was kind of the last time we all went out together. We were in this yeah. pub not far from here. Yeah. Uh, I ended up yeah. going out for dinner with a friend of mine. My daughter was there. Yeah. Our boss was there. There was loads of us there. I remember standing in the pub, um, you know, drinking large amounts of alcohol, having a great time, laughing, joking, um, leaning against people at times, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. it seems like, and I said to her this morning, it seems like 10 years ago. Yeah, and it's got to say, so I don't know if you experience this, Mike, if you watch a film or TV programme where people are out in a pub or a restaurant or a club, <laughs> it, it looks strange. Yeah. It looks odd. Yeah. You think, what what, 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 what dimension is that being filmed? It's, it's, like, watching, it's like watching, I watched all the President's Men the other week and they're all smoking in the yeah. office, as I used yeah. to do, right? Yeah, it's like what, and you're going, blimey, look at that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's as odd looking as I, it's true. I mean, so after a year, we've become completely institutionalized. Yeah. It's Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. We, we, this, this is the new normal. Mm. And I think it's going to feel very odd. And I, th I think people, it is because it's also because it's going to be like a halfway house still, isn't it? Because I don't, yeah. well, I don't know yet. I'm assuming, uh, and I, nobody's told me otherwise. I'm assuming that there won't be any QR codes because test and trace has been remarkably useless, particularly when it comes to hospitality. Yeah. So I'm assuming, yeah. and I've, I've had a couple of emails from pubs that are now taking bookings. They're not saying we'll be asking for your details. So I presume they won't be doing that. But what else will they not be doing? Will they be asking we, you yeah. to wear a mask? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know, Mike. And that, that is, you know, it's it's a shame. But you're right about test and trace. Listen, if you remember back last March, April, other sections of the media were giving the government a really hard time about testing. You should be testing. Look at Germany. Mm. Look at South Korea. We should be testing. And I'm afraid. And I can understand why the government did that. They invested in testing to a massive extent. I've been saying for a long time, we're doing too much mass testing. We should test people with symptoms, close contacts, people in key roles, people mm. in key jobs. But this idea of testing, do you, I mean, there were one and a half million tests done the last 24 hours, one and a half million. And the positive rate was 5,000. Well, quite frankly, uh, it, it makes no sense at all. But you see that the, there were various journalists and, and others and, and opposition parties say, oh, We'll solve this by testing. It was never the answer. No. The vaccine's been the answer. The va um, and, so, of, and, so it is, of, and so it is proving to be. Exactly. And a bit of common sense. I wouldn't, I'm not going to say lockdown's been the answer. I think common sense yeah. uh, of being careful has, has helped. Masks have helped. I'm actually a fan of masks, although not outdoors. Mm. Um, I, but I, I can understand how the government got themselves into the situation over test and trace because everyone, as I say, we're looking at Germany, Germany are in a terrible situation now. They were held up to us as an example of what of what early and, 
and widespread testing can do. And it, and it's, it's, it was an entirely false claim. Well, I'm looking at an update uh, in front of me here in The Times today. Germany have got more than double the rate of new cases that we have. They're up to 14,356 yeah. and we're at 6,753. Yeah. And what yeah. troubles me about the testing regimen, um, Lawrence, is what they're now doing in schools because they're asking for, for yeah. kids to be tested twice a week. You know, that's obviously going to create and even, you know, members of, yeah. of what I would call the sage establishment are now admitting that that will create quite a lot of false positives, which will push yeah. the infection rate up, which will give them yeah. another excuse to say, oh, yeah. we can't open up the economy. Yeah, and children being a very low risk anyway, yeah. catching it and spreading it. I, I think the whole school thing should stop. Mm. The sooner you're absolutely right, you're going to get false positives. And, it, you know, a positive on a lateral flow test at school means the whole family has to isolate for 10 days. Yeah, it is madness. silly. It is. It is madness. But absolutely. you can see how you can see how the situations have risen. And I go back to March, April, May last year, when people were, were hammering the government, do more, do more, do more. And they, you know, they, they had to respond in the way that they did. And it, it has been a colossal waste of money, um, as, as we've now heard, mm. and really has achieved very little. Yes. Um, now, is, we're hearing, we were hearing from Simon Calder, our travel guru, yesterday, that it might be that the government's going to introduce testing uh, on return to this country from various yeah. parts abroad, which I'm assuming, and he was saying, probably will result in total and utter chaos. Uh, at places like Heathrow Airport. But let me read you this that I got from a friend of mine who lives in Portugal. Uh, he said, uh, Portugal remains on the red list and the UK has disproportionately treated this country. We went on the list because of the connection between Portugal and Brazil, but Portugal stopped flights from Brazil like the UK. There have been a couple of cases of the Brazilian strain in Lisbon, six in the UK. The Portuguese rate is lower uh, in Portugal. It's 53 versus 62 in the UK. Why does the government not change its policy? Well, I know you can't answer for the government, but... yeah. Um, you know, where countries have got a lower rate than us, surely we need to start letting people come here, don't we? Well, the great unknown for me, uh, and this affects me personally because of the amount of testing we're doing for people travelling, we're actually now on the government-approved list for day two, day eight, eight testing. We got onto that list yesterday, mm. and we do test to release. The, the question for me is, even though we release lockdown in this country, when are we going to reduce the amount required for people travelling in and out of the UK? Because there are people booking holidays now for right. May, June, July. We don't, they don't know, we don't know, how many tests they're going to have to do before they go, when they come back, quarantine and so on. I've actually had a, a good exchange with Simon Calder because we, we had a lot of frustrations when we first went on the government list and he was actually very supportive and very helpful. Yeah. He's, he, you know, he's, a, he's a very good journalist. And... I don't know the answer. I mean, I'm hoping, um, um, I've actually got a holiday booked in June. I'm hoping a lot mm. of these restrictions are going to be reduced. But the trouble is, if other countries are behind us with vaccinations, you can see the government saying, well, we're doing well. We don't want, we don't want these people coming into the country. Mm. And, and as, I mean, at the moment, people coming into the UK have to have a PCR test in the country they're in. They have to do a day two and day eight test booked online, right. um, booked before and paid for before they come into the country. And if they want to release from quarantine after five days, uh, as long as they're not from a red list country, they have to do a day five test to release. Mm. It's all very, it's very confusing. It's very complicated. It's incredibly expensive. Well, that's the other the thing, isn't people it? Traveling. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, yes, Portugal, I, I, I agree that's, that's an issue. I think they are concerned about people traveling from brazil via portugal yeah but I, I think the whole but he says they've stopped flights you can't get to portugal now from brazil no 
No, well, if that's true, then then we should look at it. But you know, we've got the roadmap for what's going to happen in the UK, but there's been absolutely no indication as when the travel restriction. You know, we had Grant Shap saying the other day, "Don't book a summer holiday. Don't book a summer holiday. What? What? Not August? Not September?" Is, is that what he means? Uh, we well, simply don't know. That's the thing. Well, at the moment, for example, most of Europe is a no-go area because you can't go anywhere near it. I mean, yeah. France are yeah. suggesting that they will now start uh, letting people visit France, providing um, that you've got a negative test. But I think that's been the case anyway for people who have been travelling backwards and forwards. Because, I mean, Simon yeah. was telling me the other day, there's still 8,000 people a day flying into Heathrow. I don't know who they all are, yeah. but they're all kind of that's... doing it for work, apparently. So we haven't really yeah. shut the borders anyway. No, no, it's a massive number, which is, and it's exactly what I predicted, that yeah. people will just will just claim it's a business trip or personal health reasons or yeah. family and so on. Right. Um, and uh, it is an issue, but we simply don't know. No part of the roadmap addressed the issue of travelling in and out of the UK. And I, I from, from my own point of view, from my own planning, clinical staffing, I've got to plan, you know, staffing and so on, supplies, what do I order in? I would need to know what's going to happen with, with test and trace, test to release, and the day two, day eight testing. And, I, I, you know, is this going to go on forever for the rest of the year? We simply don't know. Well, that's the thing. And, I mean, I'm with you on the whole testing front because as much as, you know, it gives a kind of a picture of something, it might not give the right picture of something. Yeah. And yeah. if we are at quite a low level... Um, you know, I'm not really quite sure what the point of it all is, really, because it's quite unpleasant. I mean, I've managed to avoid having anything stuck up my nose or down my throat. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to avoid it for much longer, especially if I want to go anywhere. Yeah, I'd happily do it for you, mate. We're off to Antigua. I, I, you know, I think... Well, as long as you're gentle with me, Lawrence. Yeah. My, we pa had a patient, my pain threshold had, is very low. <laughs> OK. We had a patient vomit last week after she oh. had the swab put throat can you imagine the you know that that room had to be closed off until it was deep cleaned yeah. i mean See, you know, that's, that's my, how that would be my that would be my worry it's yeah. not pleasant and, yeah. and certainly as far as my children are concerned you know i'm not happy about the fact that somebody in a school is going to be sticking stuff up their nose yeah. and down their throat at all yeah. you know yeah no no exactly and all it tells you really anyway is that that person at that moment in time does not have it and a positive test is not the same as a case and right. if you look at the, the real things, the death rate, the hospitalisation rate, and so on, mm. those numbers are, are coming down very fast, and I, I agree. But we're, uh, we're not going to change it. The case is going to be re recorded. It'll, it'll probably stabilise at about 5,000 a day um, for a while. We'll just have to get used to that. As long as the death rate's coming down, I'm more than happy. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And what do you make of these assertions? Chris Whitty made them um, earlier this week. That you know there could be another thirty thousand people dying if we open the economy up too soon. I mean, will he ever stop with that particular narrative? I, well, I think Chris Whitty, like a lot of people, is, is preparing for the public inquiry rather than actually giving. Look, I, I have a great respect for him. I think he's done very well. I, I couldn't really relate to that comment about another 30,000 and, and I'm I'm sure he's wrong I hope he's wrong he's presumably giving very worst case scenarios which I guess in a way but is it, his but job it, but, the tr but the problem is is yes I, t I agree with all that and I get all that but he then says it's a reality and it's not a reality he shouldn't be using that kind of language no he shouldn't but it's easy for me to sit here and say that I'm not chief medical officer mm. and uh, if I were I might say something very similar to him yeah. but such is Yes, I suppose so. So, I mean, do you reckon that by the time Easter rolls around, people, because, I mean, I speak to a lot of people, obviously, now, uh, every day, and people are very fed up 
they're at the point where people who have kind of put up with it all to now are just saying, I'm sick to death of wearing this bleeding mask. You know, I have to yeah. wear it on the tube. I have to wear it in, in the office. I have to, you know, people are really getting stretched to the end of their tether, I think. Yeah, people are fed up and people are breaking the rules and they're breaking increasingly yeah. so. They're making their own decisions, which as adults, that's exactly what we should be doing rather right. than being told what to do by government. And I'm sure that will happen over Easter. Uh, and I'm sure it won't cause a, a spike in, in real uh, illness. No. It might cause a spike in positive tests, but not in real illnesses. So let's let's see what happens. Yeah, and also I'm, people, I'm very optimistic. People continually, you know, comparing it to last year, saying, oh, we shouldn't probably have opened up last year. I mean, I yeah. remember yeah. July and August of last year, and people were out and about, and people were going yeah. to pubs, but responsibly. Yeah. I didn't see, I didn't go to any pub where I saw loads of people crammed in, right? It was very no. much a social distancing, you know, every other table yeah. occupied, that kind of thing. And there was no spike in July no. or August. No. And it was only no, really in exactly. September that that came When back. the universities. Yeah. yeah. And exactly. when the schools reopened, right? And that, yeah. was that, and that was that. But also this year, we've got the vaccine. So it shouldn't be comparable, yeah. should it? No, it's not comparable at all. And we will be fine over Easter. I, I, I confidently predict that. And, and we'll see. And we'll prove it, Mike. And we'll, we'll discuss it on this programme. Well, that's good. Uh, I mean, it's Mother's yeah. Day this Sunday, right? So I dare say there will be yeah. people who want to maybe haven't seen their mother for a while, but yeah. who will now want to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll sadly, see. My, sadly be... my mother's not one of them because she's in America. Oh, OK. Well, my mother's no longer with us, but I did have a, a dream about her last night. That's so maybe nice. that's my Oh, well, that's good. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, we'll have a good weekend. Anyway, Dr. Lawrence Gurlis, uh, thank you very much indeed. GP at Same Day Doctor. Always an optimist like me uh, about the way things are going to go. And he just said to me there uh, that Easter uh, will probably be just about fine. But because Easter is the weekend before the Monday, April the 12th, when everything starts to really, really open up. So you can back, go back to the hairdressers. You can actually go uh, to a gym, I think, are also opening. And you can then uh, go and have a pint of beer afterwards and sit outside and bask in the beautiful spring weather. It makes your mouth water, doesn't it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's Friday. It's 12.50. And it's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. It's full compliance, I'm happy to say. It's been a tough old week, but once again, we have managed to get here uh, the end of the week deliciously. Presented by Martha Malagon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And welcome. welcome to me and welcome to everyone. Thank I don't know you. if this is like high enough. How's that looking? Is that it right? looks okay. Yeah. Myself. It looks right. Hang on. Hang on. Oh, there we go. Oh, there we are. It was all turned down. Oh, it was turned it? down. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I had them on earlier when I was doing a handover with Julia, so somebody must have turned them down. Well, you. Well, it couldn't have been me. <laughs> I I'm pretty sure I didn't turn down my own headphones. <laughs> Because I am partially deaf now because I've had ah. headphones in my head for so long. Of course, That I yeah. usually have them quite loud. Occupational hazard. Yes. Is that what it is? Yeah. Me and Angela Rayner. You know, because oh. she oh, bought the... Oh, very good. You know, oh, it took me a minute. Well done. See? Well done. Very well current. Done. Thank you very much that indeed. There's a life pair reward for Thank you. everyone to enjoy and welcome. And good afternoon again. Why not? This is the Perry Rewards where we look back over the past week of the so-called Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio and choose our favourite moments. As it's tradition, Mike, the first Perry goes to you and Thank it's you. the analogy of the week. I wonder if Piers Morgan is the kind of Mario Balotelli 
uh, of uh, television, you know, where they like him because he's got great talent and he's got an amazing ability to, to get ratings. But then it comes with, you know, uh, occasional kind of uh, difficulties that the management have to deal with from time to time. They know that, but they hire him anyway. Well, I haven't heard whether he's enjoying that particular analogy, but I dare say he'll tell me at some point. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. I'm I don't sure. think it would be bad to be likened to a very talented, wealthy footballer. He's good, isn't he, Mark? He's Bellatelli. very well. He's not yeah. as good as he thinks he is, but yeah, so well. I suppose there is that. Yeah, that thing. happens sometimes. And he did set off some fireworks in his in his kitchen once, I think, which didn't <laughs> completely turn unrelated. Out, which to didn't it. turn out terribly well. Uh oh. So I think Piers is probably a bit cleverer than that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know. I'm pretty sure he is. But you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. I know. And also, you know, it shows that if they ever need some cover at Talk Sport, you can go over and do some shows well, he can, there. Because, because he is an Arsenal yeah. fan. Big Arsenal fan. Of course, Big yeah. cricket fan as well. Oh, good to know. Uh, however, uh, when it comes to analogies this week, I think we might have a better one. This one comes from Neil Oliver. I mean, just today, I mean, I just found out today that my, 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 my youngest, when he goes back to school, which is imminent, he's going back for three afternoons mm. across a three-week period. No, four afternoons across a three-week period. Now, I, I mean, to me, that's just that's just lipstick on a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> there was a sort of element of, what did he just say? There's an oh, Oprah God. moment. What? Uh, what? I almost I've never heard that before. I had to check because I thought it might be one of those things that you say in England and right. I just didn't know about because I'm not from no, here. No, I mean, I've sort of heard it. I've, I've more heard lipstick on a pig. Yes, I've heard that, that one. That one. Yeah. yeah, but not a corpse. A corpse, maybe it's a Scottish thing. It could be. Yeah. It could well be. Mm. I'll be asking questions. Yes, we um, can ask him. This week, um, I don't know if you guys are aware, we've been talking a lot about Harry and Meghan. There was an interview on Sunday. Has like it? it was, yeah, explosive. Uh, you know, it was it was big. Uh, but believe it or not, some people have had enough of them. Regular contributor Helen Dell is one of them. And for that, she wins a Perry for the harsh comment of the week. Talking about them and just thinking about them to be slightly less interesting than navel fluff collecting. <laughs> Yes, Ouch. which is not very interesting. No, no, at not all. at all. No. Uh, one of the people who still want to talk to Harry and Meg about Harry and Meghan, mm. though, is talk radio presenter James Wells. So much so that he actually came in he did. to see you in person he did. and tell you how much he disagrees with you. And for that, uh, he wins this week's visual period. I think you have to be very nice. Excuse me. <laughs> sneeze. Oh, right, OK. <coughs> what have you, you got? Come in here and sneezing. What are you it's doing? Perfume. You can't come in here and sneeze. <laughs> I've got you? yeah, I've got something called amouage on, which really? is very very popular in the Middle East. Oh, My daughter really? bought it for me. It's the kind of thing you smell in Knightsbridge a lot. It's true. I, I know that. It's very expensive as well. I had no idea how much it costs. It costs a fortune. Well, that's good. You can resell it. Well, I've almost finished it now. There you go. Had it, You're yeah. gonna need a new one. I'm gonna need a new one. It's about two hundred <laughs> quid. Oh, you know. Crikey, that is a lot it of money. It is a lot. It that is. is a lot of money. But not in Dubai, it's not. Everything's about 200 well, quid yeah, in Dubai. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's your standard. It's like yeah, 20 quid here, exactly. isn't it? Uh, another one for you, Mike, is the humble brag of the week. Thank you. Master. Well, this is, this is I'm going afraid I'm going to do this again because this is me turning my career again. into a new career. But I was, show us you care was my headline. Yeah. You know, and that was, uh, and that was in the movie. It wasn't warmly received, that, was it? No. Yeah. No. I remember like I was when, shocked when I found out. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, because it's in the movie. You yeah, know that movie? The Queen, yeah. yeah the Queen, yeah. yeah. And they hold it up. Yes, they do. It's anyway. a great headline. It is. Well, you would say that. I, I would say that. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yeah. Earlier this week, Ian Collins took a day off. Who knows what? And that gave us a chance to look at the mystery of the week. 
coming up at one o'clock. Ian Collins will be here. Uh, and of course, uh, he will be uh, talking to me just before one o'clock about what is going on. Uh, although maybe Ian Collins won't be here. I'm just being uh, looked at in a very odd way. Maybe it's somebody else. Yeah. I'll tell you who it is later. You see, we have a system yeah. in the office called Talkback, right? So whenever I get something wrong, normally somebody tells me in my ear that I've got it wrong. But yeah. you didn't do that. You were just shaking your head. So I had no idea what to do then. All I knew was I was wrong. But I didn't know who was coming in. Well, I had told you before the show who was coming yeah, in. Yeah, but of course I'd forgotten that. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying you, you were at fault. No. But, but at that particular reason, I was rambling like an idiot there yeah. was because I had no idea what I'd got wrong and why. Well, listen, these things happen. Listen, what and can then, you do? I'm not. Uh, I'm only human. If you were listening, it was Richard Madeley. It was who, Richard who Madeley. Was in yes. For, for Ian Collins. Yes. Uh, now I laid entry from a little bit over an hour ago. Ooh. It's Kevin O'Sullivan and his tribute to Linkin Park. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. That's great. That's it. Brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank well you very played. much. Uh, you win another Perrier mic for the truth of the week. She's a, a very beautiful, smiley woman who's who's keeping one of our princes very happy. And, uh, you know, I always like looking at the good in people, Mike. Always, always like well, seeing... Well, you're a better woman than I am, I have to say. I mean... <laughs> Yes. I have to say these one was pointed out by numerous people on Twitter. Yes. And I was like, yes, guys, I've got Because it, obviously it. I'm not actually a woman. No. Not at the no. moment, anyway. No. I don't have any plans to become one either. Well, you never know. If that changes, uh, let us know. It could do. And finally, because I know I'm running late, as always, yes. uh, studio manager Mark Gale wins this week's Mind the Gap Parrot Award. <laughs> it starts to get incredibly difficult, and free speech is very much at risk. And I don't think that's a place where any of us want to go. This is Talk Radio. Let's talk to Brendan O'Neill <laughs> from Spiked Online. Brendan. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's almost like there was a delay. Well, thing is, you left a pause there that we didn't know was coming. So we didn't know what to do. Yeah. We didn't know whether to go to a break, throw a jingle. Yeah. It was, it was well, very Well, it was kind confusing. of meant to be a dramatic ending of the sec section because yes. it was like a sort of monologue which had yes. come to an end. And the mm -hmm. problem with doing a monologue that doesn't come to an end is they don't know how to edit it. <laughs> no. Right, so then you're just carrying on. Yes. So I thought I'll give him a chance to edit it. Yes. Right there, bang. We need to get that end of monologue uh, jingle. Yes. Maybe we'll get that. But the that, thing is, we um, should again. I suppose I could have told him what I was going to do that it might have helped. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that would have massively him. helped. Yes. Yeah, but you know, you can't think of everything, can you? No, no of course not. You're oh, there only goes the chair there again. Hooray! <laughs> Great. It's Friday. All we the made hits it. Are coming. And uh, that's all for the pair rewards. There'll be more next week. The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.